Hi, my name is Yasmin Tarehi, and this is Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one conversations with leading experts in wellness and spirituality. Today's episode is about how to microdose with psychedelics for spiritual growth, creativity, and business. On today's show, we'll be featuring our guest, Paul Austin. Paul Austin is an entrepreneur, public speaker, and educator. He's founded two companies in the emerging psychedelic space, Third Wave and Synthesis. Currently, Third Wave offers long-form psychedelic guides, online microdosing programs, and an industry-best network of clinics and retreat providers. In 2018, Paul co-founded Synthesis and led several high-dose psilocybin truffle retreats over the span of one year. Paul's a pioneer in the space and has been featured in the BBC, Forbes, and Rolling Stone. He sees psychedelic use as a skill, one that becomes more refined as we explore the many nuances of these awe-inspiring medicines and molecules. And he believes that learning how to hone the skill will be crucial in the story of humanity's present future evolution. I'm so excited to have you on the show today, Paul. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Yasmin. So, Paul, you focus on psychedelics. Can you just tell our audience what are psychedelics for people that maybe have never heard of it or haven't had much experience or access to the space? Can you kind of define broadly what psychedelics are? So psychedelics, the the word psychedelic means mind manifesting, and it actually comes from a series of letters that were written in the 60s between Humphrey Osmond, who most of your listeners won't know, and Aldous Huxley, who was a well-known British writer, uh, the author of Brave New World. And the classic psychedelics are things like LSD, psilocybin mushrooms, uh, DMT, ayahuasca, uh, San Pedro, peyote, and then you also have a few others like iboga, 2CB, um, there, there are a few others others like that. And, and really what a classic psychedelic does is it, it dissolves the ego. It's probably the simplest way of putting it. And it allows you to tap in to some sort of spiritual presence or spiritual nature. You know, most people report that when they have, in particular, these high-dose psychedelic experiences, they have what, what is termed a mystical experience, which is where they, they essentially feel a, a divine connection to something that's, that's much greater than themselves. And, you know, for the last 50 years or so, psychedelics have been illegal, uh, much like cannabis. Uh, in the late 60s, early 70s, when the United States waged the war on drugs, they prohibited all of these compounds. But what a lot of people don't know is that in the 50s and 60s, there were thousands of clinical papers that were published on psychedelics, proving that they were anti-addictive, that they were incredibly safe, and that they were efficacious at treating a range of conditions from end-of-life anxiety to depression to alcoholism to autism, you know, to increasing creativity. And so what we're experiencing now with psychedelics is really a resurgence of interest in um, in both their medical use for things like treatment-resistant depression and PTSD, uh, but also, you know, what we're experiencing in places like Silicon Valley are... Uh, is a resurgence of, of interest in psychedelics for, for creativity. And this is where microdosing is so interesting because uh, microdosing for many people is that entry point to uh, working with psychedelic substances. Wonderful. And I want to go into the spiritual versus the medicinal um, kind of medical approach to psychedelics. Um, but before we go into that, can you tell us what Third Wave is? I know it's the, the company that you founded. Um, can you walk us through uh, the creation of it and t- tell us a little bit about what it is? Sure thing. So back in 2010, about 10 years ago now, I first started uh, taking LSD and psilocybin mushrooms and did so largely in in higher doses, not extreme high doses, but higher doses outside at the woods or in, you know, comfortable house settings with a friend or two friends or, you know, a handful of friends. And in those experiences, really had these these profound insights about who I was and the nature of what it is that I wanted to pursue and the story that I wanted to write with my life. And, and those early experiences with psychedelics were were influential in, in pursuing a largely unconventional path through most of my 20s. And eventually what I ended up doing is moving abroad. I lived in Turkey for about a year. I lived in Thailand for about a year. And while I was living in Thailand, uh, was starting my first business and uh, happened to hear about microdosing on uh, the Tim Ferriss podcast. 
and thought back to my early psychedelic trips, these really profound and insightful experiences that I had, and remembered that, you know, after those experiences that I had like this sort of afterglow effect where life just felt a little bit smoother. It was easier to stay disciplined. It was easier to connect with other people. And, um, and so when I heard about microdosing, I was like, I wonder if this is a way that we can, you know, keep that afterglow effect open, open for longer so that I'm easy. It's, it's easier to be more creative and connect with other people and, um, you know, access flow states and, and things like this. And so I, I started microdosing. I, I started taking small amounts of LSD about two times a week and did that for around six to seven months and really had an incredible experience. And after that experience, you know, as an entrepreneur was sort of like looking online to see what sort of resources, what sort of things are available. And there really was very little. And so I, you know, made a choice to start a brand and a platform to help inform the general populace about the responsible and intentional use of psychedelics. And when I was sort of coming up with this idea for the website, I was, I was in Budapest at the time and I was walking, you know, around Budapest, tripping on basically microdosing acid with a couple friends. And we were going to third wave coffee shops and third wave coffee are, you know, most people would know them in terms of it's like Starbucks, is second wave, third wave is more like you get a swan in your latte, right? That's sort of third wave coffee. That's a good way to think about it. So we were going to third wave coffee shops. We were on uh, microdosing on LSD. We were trying to come up with sort of a, a phrase to describe this resurgence of interest in psychedelics. And uh, so the, our friends and I came up with this term like, oh, it's the third wave of psychedelics. And I think, you know, inadvertently that was just because we had been talking about third wave coffee, because we had been talking about psychedelics that sort of like emerged. And then after the fact, I, I was looking back at it and realizing that, oh, this makes sense that the, um, the first wave of psychedelics was the indigenous use of these plant medicines for thousands of years. So, uh, the, the ancient Greeks, uh, had a, a thing called the Eleusinian mysteries where they drank a beverage called Kaikion and, you know, in ayahuasca or in, Am in the Amazon, they drank ayahuasca in ancient India, they drank a beverage called a Soma, which is written about in the Bhagavad Gita and the Upanishad. So there's this rich, rich historical use of uh, psychedelics that a lot of people don't know about. So that was sort of the first wave of psychedelics for thousands of years. And then the second wave of psychedelics was the resurgence of interest in psychedelics after the invention of LSD in 1938 uh, by Albert Hoffman. And like I alluded to earlier, there was a ton of research done in the 50s and 60s, and that's when we first started to get very clinical, precise data about uh, the efficacy of psychedelics. Unfortunately, uh, you know, the, there, there was also a lot of irresponsible use, and, and, and for that reason, things got a little too crazy and out of control, and there was a pretty significant backlash against the use of psychedelics. And so what the third wave of psychedelics represents is really staying rooted in that, that lineage and that history that we as humans have known for thousands of thousands of years with these medicines, the rituals that we've developed and the, um, the, the narratives and the cosmology that we have with these substances, and then integrating it with the, the, the very precise you know, scientific method that we've developed in more modern times to, to really find what is the ideal integration between those, the, those rituals, those, those ancient lineage, uses and, and, and a much more precise scientific use. So looking at the, the, the integration of those. And, and so when, when, you know, I had a chance to look at that and, and, you know, we were getting that, that story and brand and, you know, the website up and going, educating more people, we decided that we wanted to focus in particular on microdosing because, uh, microdosing is a very approachable way, a very accessible way to start to work with these medicines. You know, when a lot of people hear about psychedelics, the the initial reaction is, well, pff, what if I have a bad trip, right? What if I, what if I have a really dark or, or difficult experience? And so that is usually the ego that's speaking because the ego is often threatened by mm -hmm. these substances at very high doses because the ego gets dissolved. Um, and so what microdosing can do is it's a way to start to work with the substances, to develop a relationship with them, to become more comfortable with them before sort of diving into the deep end of one's consciousness with a high dose of a psychedelic. Now, what's also interesting about this whole concept of the third wave is, like I said earlier, there was a third wave of coffee. There's been third wave of feminism. You know, we're, we're sort of pioneering this third wave of psychedelics. There was this phenomenal book written in 1980 by a futurist named Alvin Toffler called The Third Wave, which I only found out about 
after I'd started the website. I think about 18 months after I'd started the third wave as a website, one of our readers reached out, was like, Paul, that's so interesting that you've you know, titled it The Third Wave. There's this book that was written almost 40 years ago by a guy named Alvin Toffler about the third wave. And what <laughs> um, Toffler writes about in that book is how the first wave was the agricultural revolution, right? So agriculture, which is, again, the first wave of psychedelics was the use of plant medicines for thousands of years in the agricultural area. The second wave is the industrial era, right? Taking that much more precise, kind of systematized, um, scalable approach. That was the second wave of psychedelics in the 50s and 60s, right? When they first started to enter clinical research, the industrial model. And now what Toffler writes about in the third wave is a much more decentralized mycelial model of being where we enter sort of the information age and and we we sort of evolve out of the sort of bureaucratic hierarchy of industrialization and so the the sort of beautiful way that this all ties together is what my observation is is the responsible and intentional use of psychedelics because of the impact that it has on the psyche because of how it helps us to feel so interconnected to everything around us is helping to really um, catalyze that shift towards this third wave of cultural evolution because essentially it's helping us to realize that our health, our well-being is directly interconnected to our environment and everyone around us. And through the use of psychedelics, these substances, we we come to that recognition. And, and, and there's no better time than now to sort of have that awakening, if you will, because of all of the crises that we're facing. And all of the crises that we're facing, the ecological crises, I would say the political crises with polarization, various, the mental health crises, right? The core of it is um, disconnection. The core of it is separation. And that is fundamentally what the industrial era did to us is it separated us, it disconnected us. And what we're coming back to now is, is how do we come back into connection with, with everything around us? So that's a little bit of a, I would say overarching view of the third wave and kind of how it fits into some larger, maybe meta models of, of what's developed. Thank you, Paul. Wow. That's super interesting. And I, I love the, um, your reference on like kind of being estranged from nature and the connection to everything and everyone, um, to kind of the, losing that over the, the last several, I guess, hundred years. And now the desire to kind of go back into this interconnectedness. And I want to double click. I mean, there's oh, so many questions I have after that, <laughs> that eloquent description. Um, but I want to talk about microdosing specifically, because I think that, you know, you've mentioned that that is a space that feels much more accessible for people that might be too afraid to dive into the piece of the ego dissolution. Um, but I'm curious if you think that, um, the ego dissolution is so necessary to having a transformation of interconnectedness. Uh, why, uh, why start with microdosing? Um, you know, I, I just want to kind of really understand like how, how that's going to work um, for, for kind of where we, where we are in society today. So, you know, in, in many ways, microdosing is like the onboarding, right? It's like, it's like before you go do a Vipassana, you, you first learn how to sit for 10 to 15 minutes at home, right? Mm -hmm. Um, before you go do a deep breath work and, you know, ice plunge for, for 15 minutes, you first want to maybe learn a little bit about, you know, how to, how to breathe properly with your diaphragm. Um, before you, you know, the analogy that I, that I most commonly use when talking about this relationship is um, when we learn how to swim, you know, in a pool or in a lake or whatever, right? When we learn how to swim for the first time, we start in the shallow end. Uh, we have our swimmies on. We maybe have an instructor. We can touch the bottom. We feel safe. We kind of move around in this new environment. We get a sense for how things work. And then as we become more comfortable with this new environment, we go into the deep end and we can jump off the diving board and we can mm. swim around. If we're just thrown into the deep end right away, we have a much higher degree of of having a traumatizing experience. And if mm. we have a traumatizing experience, then we're much less likely to actually generate the, the benefits from uh, these high-dose psychedelic experiences. So what microdosing does is it just allows you to titrate and calibrate um, to like kind of peeling off the, the the layers of the self. And and for a lot of people who are who are getting into this work, 
you know, and, and who maybe even have tried psychedelics before, uh, many people will just jump right in and have a bunch of mushrooms or take quite a bit of acid or go do an ayahuasca experience and it will be really, really intimidating. It will be, you know, when you dissolve the ego, you basically are unpacking repressed memories from the subconscious and unconscious that you kept tucked away so that you could develop some sort of personality to survive. And especially for those who are coming to psychedelics to heal things like PTSD and depression and addiction, the things that are locked away in that unconscious and subconscious are not pleasant, you know, they're, they're often very difficult to face. And so there, there's an, and there's an ability with microdosing to sort of slowly wade your way into that. Uh, to do that with a coach or a therapist, to slowly peel back the the, the sort of onion of self-awareness. And in that slow peeling back, we just feel a little bit more comfortable. We feel like, oh, I kind of get this space now. I sort of get how to navigate it. I get how to go inwards. And then we can go deeper and deeper into the experience. So that's the more sort of, um, I'd say, metaphorical or or philosophical way of looking at it. I think the very practical way of looking at it is a lot of people who are interested in working with high doses of psychedelics first need to get off certain pharmaceutical medications like antidepressants or anti-anxiety medications. And so many of them will use microdosing sort of as a transition to wean off certain medications so that they actually have the capacity to work with higher doses of, of psychedelics. And then the the sort of other main reason is there's just different uses for microdosing compared to higher doses, you know, like higher doses are great for that mystical experience. But sometimes when I take a psychedelic, I don't want to have the mystical experience. <laughs> I just want to have a little more energy or, you know, want to elevate my mood a little bit. And so I also look at microdosing as a supplement, uh, much like I would take, you know, uh, functional mushrooms or much like I would take a prebiotic or probiotic or fish oil. A microdosing is something that's highly anti-inflammatory, so it's great for the gut. Uh, it shows significant uh, impacts on neuroplasticity. Um, so it's just like a great overall thing to be imbibing on a, on a somewhat consistent basis uh, for more flow, for more creativity, for higher levels of neuroplasticity, uh, these sorts of things. Great. And Paul, a lot of people, um, I think the most popular question that I've heard in this space uh, for people that are interested is how do I actually access <laughs> microdosing, you know, different psychedelics? And I mean, obviously right now it's uh, illegal, um, but can you talk to us about uh, synthesis and maybe places where people can access uh, microdosing and just different psychedelics in general? Because I think that question just keeps coming up over and over again. Yeah. So what's the legal framework? So there's sort of like things that are illegal. There's things that are borderline, like gray area, and there's things that are fully legal. Um, so in terms of like fully legal, like the Netherlands, uh, psilocybin truffles are legal there. So they're actually over the past year or so, there have been a ton of companies that have sprouted up in the Netherlands that are selling microdoses of psilocybin truffles, and they'll typically ship all over Europe. Uh, they won't ship to the United States necessarily, but they will ship all over Europe. In uh, Canada as well, Canada is really, I'd say, leading the charge in, in North America, uh, just like they did with cannabis. Uh, there are, you know, drug decriminalization. Um, I'm sorry, all drugs have been decriminalized now in Canada. So what you're wow. seeing a lot in Canada are um, sort of these gray area uh, things that are popping up online where people will just be selling microdosing supplements online. And also in Canada, it's legal to purchase what are called psychedelic analogs. So although substances like LSD and psilocybin mushrooms are still technically illegal, uh, there are substances like 1P LSD and 4 ACO DMT, which are analogs that you can legally purchase in Canada for Canadians. Um, a few other things, Jamaica, psilocybin mushrooms are legal in places like Peru, Ecuador, Colombia, Brazil, ayahuasca, which has DMT, is legal. Um, and that's sort of it. You know, in terms of places where where these these substances are fully legal. Now you have places like Costa Rica where these substances are decriminalized. So that's why we've seen a number of ayahuasca retreats pop up in Costa Rica, uh, and psilocybin mushroom retreats pop up in Costa Rica. And then, in the United States, cities like Denver and Oakland have decriminalized plant medicines. So that doesn't mean it's legal, but that does mean that law enforcement has decided that they're not going to uh, pursue any sort of um, you know, spend any money on, on, on pursuing people who, who 
use these substances. So there's sort of, again, that gray market, underground market that's popping up in those places as well. So although psychedelics are still illegal, they're, they're much easier to access than, let's say, three or four years ago. Uh, but like they are still illegal and they're still quite difficult for, for people to access. And it's really, you know, it won't be until 2023 or 2024 till the medical use of psilocybin becomes um, fully legal for clinical conditions. Right now, ketamine is legal and ketamine can be used in a psychedelic way. Um, but it's not technically a psychedelic. It's technically a disassociative, which has a slightly different effect than uh, a classic psychedelic. Wow. Super interesting. Very informative. Thank you. Um, Paul, you know, there's a lot of conversations around the, let's say, clinical medical aspect of psychedelics. Um, and I think some people, there's like, to me, it feels like there's many camps um, of, or philosophies towards psychedelics. And some people see it just as a, a way to sort of, um, like you said, like dissolve the ego or maybe work on mental health issues. Um, I'm wondering if you could talk about the spiritual component of psychedelics and why um, that might be really important to the kind of um, outcome of the psychedelic use. So when clinical research was first carried out on psychedelics in the early 2000s, the uh, institution of Johns Hopkins, which is a pretty uh, premier institution in the United States, the first clinical research that they published was showing that psilocybin could occasion a mystical type experience. And essentially what that meant is with a high dose of psilocybin, when taken within a therapeutic context, so you know the person was laying down, they had a playlist on, they had a therapist or two who was there to support them, they were very likely to have one of the most profound experiences of their lives. And uh, this sort of classical mystical experience is like experiencing God. It's, it's, it's experiencing divinity. It's, um, you know, uh, connecting with something much greater than ourselves. Um, and normal sort of mystical experiences, only about, I think, one to two percent of people have sort of instantaneous, not instantaneous, but... Um, emergent mystical experiences without any sort of drugs or anything. So 1% of people have them. With psychedelics, when done within a, a therapeutic setting, when done within an intentional setting, uh, that, that number is upwards of 80% of people have something that borders uh, close to a mystical experience. Now, the reason that's so important is because uh, at the core of the healing of psychedelics. So the reason why psychedelics are so effective at healing dep major depressive disorder, treatment-resistant depression, alcoholism, OCD, PTSD, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The underlying mechanism for all of that is the degree to which an individual has the mystical experience. So in other words, the stronger the mystical experience someone has, the stronger the spiritual experience that someone has, um, the greater benefit they have in a clinical setting. So let's say someone has a, like an incredibly intense mystical experience. They see God, they experience God, they are God, they're one with God, and they have depression. That person is much more likely to um, be depression-free for six months to a year for maybe longer than someone who maybe takes psychedelics but doesn't have the full mystical experience. And that's a really, really important finding because what it says underneath that is at the core of our mental health epidemic is a disconnection. And this is, hopefully this doesn't get too um, philosophical uh, for your audience, but there was you know a famous philosopher at the end of the 19th century uh, named Friedrich Nietzsche and uh, Nietzsche talked about how God is dead and that because God is dead, um, that we would see in the 20th century all of these sort of cultural issues, World War One, World War Two, you know, like you name it, just like a total decadence in, 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 in culture. And so what psychedelics represent is sort of a coming back to God. They, they represent an ability to reconnect. And regardless of whether that's within a religious context or within just sort of a spiritual and Gnostic context, regardless of whether that's, you know, a God in, in sort of a prophet form like Muhammad or Jesus or whoever it might be, or, you know, a God is in like just nature you know, or, or um, whatever it is, there's a sense of when we have these, these high dose psychedelic experiences, we are connected to something greater than ourselves. And that connection is at the core of the healing efficacy of, of psychedelics. 
Paul, can you talk to us about the intention piece, why that's so important, and also uh, set and setting in general? Why are they so important? So there's a pretty well-known psychiatrist within the psychedelic field. His name is Stanislav Grof. And Stanislav Grof is originally from the Czech Republic. And in the 50s and 60s, he did thousands of LSD trips before it became illegal. And then once LSD became illegal, he developed this technique called holotropic breathwork, which could essentially, through breathwork, facilitate an opening like a psychedelic experience that then a therapist or whoever could could work could work with. And Groff has a pretty famous quote now, well-known quote, which is something along the lines of um, the telos, the, the psychedelics are the microscope of the mind. And just what the telescope was to astronomy, allowing us to see deep within the stars, um, psychedelics are that to the psyche, allowing us to see deep within ourselves, deep into our subconscious, into our unconscious. And so because they are these non-specific amplifiers, right? They just amplify sort of the, the 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 contents of our subconscious and our unconscious so that we can look at it and see it and and come to terms with it. It's really, really key that we have an intention going into these experiences because if we don't sort of create boundaries, or a container for our mind, then it could bring us into some really, uh, some really places that we're, we're not really sure where we want to go. So having that clear intention then allows, just like a microscope would in terms of really zeroing in on something, um, having that clear intention allows you to utilize the energy from a psychedelic experience to sort of heal or transform whatever it is that needs to be healed and transformed. And that's why, you know, when it comes to set and setting, a psychedelic experience or a psychedelic voyage or a psychedelic journey isn't just about taking mushrooms or dropping acid or going and doing an ayahuasca retreat. So much of it is also how you prepare and how you integrate. Mm -hmm. And so a big part of set and setting is how are you preparing the week beforehand? Are you, you know, eliminating caffeine and tobacco and cannabis? Are you spending more time in meditation, more time going inwards? Are you preparing yourself to have a sacred spiritual experience with these with these plant medicines? And then after you've had this experience, how are you integrating it afterwards? How are you taking those insights and perspectives and cementing them so that they don't just become this, you know, fleeting drug experience that just goes with the with the winds once you re-enter the matrix, but actually helps to transform transform you from the inside out. So when you come back here, um, you know, you're, you're, you're changed, you know, things have shifted significantly. Um, so set and setting really is so key because those who honor set and setting, those who pay attention to set and setting, you know, the, the chances of having a, um, traumatic experience, um, become essentially, you know, basically negligible. You know, I think a good way of looking at it is there's no such thing as a, as a um, bad or good psychedelic experience. There are only safe and unsafe psychedelic experiences. And as long as you feel safe in that psychedelic experience, as long as you can surrender to whatever it is that's coming up, to whatever it is that you need to process, then um, that's honoring set and setting. That That's ensuring that you do have a container in which you can process a lot of these things that we don't get a chance to look at every day necessarily. Mm, yeah. Wow. And Paul, I think a lot of people talk about um, maybe fear uh, around trying psychedelics um, or just hearing about other people's experience of having a, a bad trip, for example. And I think psychedelics in general have kind of been lumped into all types of drugs. Um, and I, I want to really understand from you why, how psychedelics are so different from some of the other drugs in terms of the adverse or negative effects, um, you know, in terms of uh, addiction, like can people become addicted to it? Uh, can people, you know, other than having a really bad trip, you know, are there any you know, uh, ramifications when it comes to the mind? Like what are some of the negative uh, things that can happen or, and do you have any stats, maybe it's probably hard to get, but if you have any stats on how often that happens, um, if let's say you've set the right set and setting. 
Yeah, so there there are a couple of pieces of that, right? One is how these substances compared to other drugs, which I think is is one part of the question. And then the second then is specific just to the classic psychedelics, what are the risks, so to say, of 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 working with these substances. So, you know, there's there there has been some research done that that shows that the classic psychedelics, particularly psilocybin and LSD, are the safest drugs that we have available to us. Safer than alcohol, safer than tobacco, safer than cannabis. Um, safer than pharmaceuticals, safer than obviously, uh, you know, things like heroin and cocaine and, uh, benzodiazepines and, and whatnot. So we have research proving that psilocybin mushrooms and LSD are literally the two safest drugs known to man. Um, as a follow-up to that, uh, the reason why that's the case is because these, these, these substances are anti-addictive. So a lot of drugs are addictive, including cannabis, including tobacco, including alcohol, including obviously heroin and cocaine. And they all have varying degrees of, of addictiveness. But one of the core reasons why they are addictive is because of their, their impact on dopamine and how they're, they're very dopaminergenic. So once you get that high from them, it's the same reason why we're addicted to our smartphones. Once you get that high from that dopamine, you want to come back and, and have more of it. Psychedelics are largely serotonergic. You know, they largely um, um, activate the serotonin receptors. And because they're largely serotonergic, they tend to facilitate a feeling of contentment, of stillness, of quiet, of peace, of presence, uh, just like meditation or just like breath work. Um, and that's why they help us to heal uh, these many sort of mental health conditions because they help the mind to settle. They help the mind to find center. They help us, you know, not to ruminate on the past or focus so much on the future, uh, but really stay as present as possible. So in terms of risks, you know, um, specific then to the classic psychedelics, the main risk is if someone is a predisposition to schizophrenia, then they should avoid psychedelics, especially if they're younger than 26. Um, and uh, a family history of psychosis, a family history of schizophrenia is also representative of that because almost all of the potential long-term negative consequences of psychedelics come from people who have basically um, initiated a psychosis through psychedelics. And that's almost always because they have a predisposition to it. So if you have a predisposition to psychosis, definitely avoid psychedelics. Do not work with psychedelics. Um, besides that, you know, I think it's like 1% of the population. Besides that, these substances um, are basically incredibly safe and healthy for everyone else. Um, there are no physiological risks in terms of like you can't overdose on mushrooms. You can't overdose on LSD, right? It's impossible. You literally can't do it. Um, the main risk is, again, it comes down to set and setting, Whereas probably people read about in news stories or heard about from the 60s, people would jump out windows sometimes when they were having bad trips. They would do really, really stupid shit. And that's why it's so critical that especially if you're having a high dose experience, that you have a sitter, a guide or a therapist that's there with you, that you have a safe and comfortable place to do it um, and that you approach it with a lot of respect and reverence for the medicine. It's not just a drug. It's not just something that you do recreationally. But it's really something that you have an intention for and you approach with, um, you know, a, a sort of a gravitas uh, to the experience. So that's a little bit, you know, I think um, MDMA is a bit different than the classic psychedelics. There are a little bit more risks with MDMA. It's a little more neurotoxic. It can be a little more addictive. But MDMA is technically what they call an empathogen, meaning it's, it helps to facilitate empathy. So there's a little bit of nuance with that, but you know, by and large, the classic psychedelics are incredibly safe, uh, meaning they have very little risk. And not only are they incredibly safe and have very little risk, but they also have obviously tremendous upside for all the reasons that we spoke about today. So the sort of benefit-risk ratio for all drugs known to man are, if you're going to do any drugs, do psychedelics <laughs> um, because they can be incredibly healing and, and beneficial and, and for all the reasons that we've talked about so far. Paul, can we uh, talk about how psychedelics can help you in the business world? Um, I know that obviously you, you talked about the third wave and how we're entering into this new kind of shift um, in consciousness and creativity. And so 
I'm wondering if you could spend a little bit of time talking about um, psychedelics and business and, and why it's become so important, especially now, right? Like why, why is the third wave happening now? <laughs> right. Yeah. So there's, there's a few interesting points here. You know, one I think is the, the birth of Silicon Valley was intertwined with the second wave of psychedelics. So, you know, LSD in the fifties and sixties, a lot of the early experiments with LSD happened at Menlo Park. Um, which is right by Stanford. And a lot of those people who were involved in those early um, research trials uh, with LSD went on to invent things like uh, the computer and uh, the mouse and, you know, various other early technology things. Uh, you know, Steve Jobs is probably the most famous one um, in terms of he had uh, a few early LSD experiences that were incredibly profound and impactful on his psyche and uh, that he said were one of the most, you know, impactful experiences that he ever had. And so there's a, there's a rich history then, um, between that, that, um, that resurgence of interest in psychedelics in the sixties and the birth of uh, the computer revolution. So it's no coincidence then that, you know, the, the, the place that it's come back to, especially with microdosing LSD is Silicon Valley, where this really has been going on underground for 40 years. It's only now that there's more cultural acceptance that more and more people are, are talking about it. And then the best way to think about that is to go back to sort of the, the third wave analogy that I spoke about before, right? Like the transition from industrialization to the information age. So the transition from, um, you know, standardization, um, you know, mass creation of things, um, you know, needing to work hard and put in long hours, the, the core drugs for the industrial period were tobacco, alcohol, and caffeine. Where essentially with tobacco and caffeine, those are your uppers, those are your stimulants. That's what helped you to focus. That's what helped you to get shit done. And then at night, you know, to help you calm down and, and sort of relax, you drank alcohol. And then, you know, those are sort of the main drugs of the, the Industrial Revolution. It helped us to get shit done. It helped us with our what, what's called a convergent thinking process to really focus on things and, and go ch -ch 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 -ch, uh, get tasks wrapped up. Um, and then psychedelics came out on the scene in 50s and 60s. And psychedelics have a much different effect than uh, caffeine and nicotine uh, as stimulants. So caffeine and nicotine really facilitate convergent thinking, the ability to get things done and focus and quote-unquote productivity, uh, whereas psychedelics help with a process called divergent thinking, which is essentially a fancy way of saying they help with creativity. They help with brainstorming. They help with coming up with new ideas. They help with innovation. They help with um, seeing how things tie together that you wouldn't normally tie together. Um, and... So there's an interesting relationship there then between the drugs that we use and the skills that are most valuable within the workplace. Because again, in the industrial workplace, the skill that was most valuable was how much can you get done? Uh, how productive can you be? Whereas in today's day and era, if you talk to anyone in a leadership position, anyone especially who's doing something innovative and interesting, the most important skill is creativity and innovation. The most important skill is not necessarily who can work the hardest and the longest, but who can come up with ideas that are disruptive, who can come up with ideas that are going to help to shift and change the trajectory of humanity. And what we're noticing again and again and again and again is that people who are at the forefront of these emerging in industries, these, these industries that are creating this sort of new world order, this, this third wave, if you will, are using psychedelics to help with that process. And sometimes it's not intentionally to oh, I have a business problem, let me drop some acid and go in the woods and figure it out. Although that's certainly something that I've done a handful of times. I think a lot more of it is, is psychedelics are simply incredible tools to uh, know oneself. And when you know yourself better, when you go inwards, when you cultivate stillness and quiet and, and you can really see and, and experience yourself for who you are, you tend to make um, business decisions, you tend to make professional decisions that are more aligned with your true sense of being. And when you're more aligned with the work that you're doing, it's easier to access flow. You're more productive. You're more likely to work hard. You're more likely to be enthusiastic about what it is that you're doing. Uh, and that is really the, 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 the focus of, of the future workplace. It's, you know, the corporate workplace, which is a remnant of the industrial period in itself. Corporations are industrial. The corporate workplace has created uh, 
incredibly, incredibly high levels of job dissatisfaction. People mm-hmm. feel like, you know, like Fight Club. They got to show up. <laughs> they got to put in the time. They got to make the money so they can buy the IKEA furniture. So they can do all the bullshit, right? And people are sick of it. So what we're looking more and more is when people go through these high-dose psychedelic experiences, they're going – why am I spending my time like that? Like I have this one precious life. Why, why not do something creative? Why not, why not, why not do something beautiful? Why not um, build something that really contributes to the evolution of humanity and doesn't just fucking rape and, you know, like extract things from the earth. And so a lot of people then who go through these plant medicine journeys are then motivated after they come out of them to be involved in more socially conscious uh, enterprises, to start their own businesses, to quit their corporate jobs, to, you know, have enough self respect and self-love where they go, I don't want to spend 40 or 50 hours of my week miserable working a job that I hate. I want to find a much deeper alignment between who it is that I am and what it is I wish to pursue in the world. And, and I want to pursue that with all of my being, regardless of income. Obviously, income is important. We need to make money. But when we go through these psychedelic experiences, we realize that income is superficial. We realize that once we've reached a certain level of income, that there's no sort of greater happiness or joy that comes beyond that. That, that, that is what, what's much more important is what I call existential wealth, right? The, the wealth of existence, the wealth of being, the, the ability, the time to cultivate stillness and quiet, the ability and time to choose how it is we wish to live. That is the, the wealth of the third wave. It's an existential wealth. And that's why uh, psychedelics will be so key to helping, I think, humanity embody that, um, especially in the next 10 years as we go through all these changes as a result of COVID and you know coming out of industrialization and all these sort of other things that we talked about today. Mm, yeah. Paul, do you think that psychedelics are more important, you know, in Western cultures, like the post-industrial era cultures versus Eastern cultures who are maybe already have meditative practices? Um, I'm just curious if you've, if you've thought about. Uh, that's a great question. That's a really good question. You know, I would say they're more relevant to Western cultures because it's, it's sort of like, um, I mean, I think the simple answer to that is, is yes. And no one's asked me that question before, you know, when, (laughs) when, um, like I said, they wrote about Soma in the Bhagavad Gita and the Upanishads. So there is still a rich history of monks in ancient India, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, but in today's day and era, it's just not, it's talked about, but it's not near as talked about, you know, and it's the same with cannabis. You know, cannabis is talked about a little bit more in places like Thailand now, but still in places like China, Japan, India, this really isn't, isn't talked about so much. Um, so yeah, I, I, I would say like partly just because of the bubble that, that I'm in and that we're in, you know, I'm, I'm aware of how common and, and, um, how relevant they are to, to sort of the post-industrial world here and here in, in the United States and in Europe and North America generally. Um, but I also strongly believe that as more and more people have these healing experiences that those who can have access to them and those who want to have access to them will, will find them regardless of sort of their jurisdiction. So in other words, there's still a, a sort of there's a shared humanity, regardless of whether we're Eastern or Western. And I think there's a shared wound, uh, mm-hmm. whether we're Eastern or Western, that, that can be solved by, salved, S-A-L-V-E-D, that can be solved by uh, psychedelic medicine. And, you know, I think the other thing that um, may be a little more controversial, but is worth saying is it feels like psychedelic medicines, you know, won't be used by everyone, but they'll be definitely be used by sort of the the intelligentsia, if you will, the, 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 the producers, the, the top 10%, uh, the people who are creating businesses, the, the professionals. And I think that shift and, and seeing that shift in that demographic of people, you know, I, I don't think you're common every day, you know, factory worker or, you know, a service provider or, you know, someone who works at a restaurant, they might not be so interested in, in psychedelic medicine, but I do see there being like those who have, maybe a little bit more of a sort of a a, a complex cognitive development, if you will, will, will pick up on the efficacy of these substances regardless of whether they're, they're Eastern or Western. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's also like the level of consciousness that you are at, right? Um, I've been having these conversations with people about, you know, how much can one transform in a lifetime from where they started to by the time, you know, they get to old age. 
um, you know, how, how many layers of consciousness can we actually <laughs> um, move, move through, right? Because I think it takes a level of courage. It takes a level of presence. Um, it just, it also takes a level of, of consciousness. Like people I think are unconscious of being unconscious. So how do you even begin to have the conversation for, I think most of the world. For most of the world, right? And and it's sort of like you don't want to wake someone else who doesn't. You don't want to wake someone up who doesn't want to be woken up. You know, people have yeah. to come into that in their own way and in their own being, um, because coming into greater awareness, yes, you come into more light, but you also come into more shadow. Mm. And so it's not necessarily like like you said, it's not necessarily for the faint of heart. It's for people who are willing to walk that path. And most people don't want to walk that path. Most people are perfectly you know, fine and content in their own little sort of matrixy bubbles. And, um, to, to open something up, it, it's, it's a Pandora's box situation and, and that's not always easy. You know, it's not always, not always easy. Yeah, absolutely. Paul, what's surprised you the most on this journey? So you've heard of the character Dumbo. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. So Dumbo has a feather. Do you remember Dumbo's feather? I don't remember his feather. Bell? No, I remember okay. Dumbo. So Dumbo, Dumbo had a feather. Okay. <laughs> Dumbo's a Disney character. There's a Dumbo ride at, at Disney World. It was my favorite ride when I was five. I remember <laughs> that. Um, and Dumbo had a feather. And Dumbo thought that the only reason that he could fly was because he had this little feather. And um, And then one day his friend or whoever he was with decided that, you know, he would take away the feather without Dumbo knowing. And Dumbo you know, thought that, oh, I can only fly with this feather. And the feather went away and Dumbo could keep on flying. He could keep on going. He could keep on ascending, right? In other words, there was a sort of placebo effect, if you will, of the feather. Um, and that all Dumbo needed was enough confidence in himself. All Dumbo needed was to know himself well enough, to believe in himself enough, to be able to ascend to new heights. And I think psychedelic medicine represents something similar to that where there's definitely, um, I wouldn't say it's just a placebo effect, that there's definitely something that's going on, but that what psychedelics medicine, what psychedelic medicines do more than anything is they, they excavate, they clear out, they decondition and they, they, they peel back the, the sort of onion of self-awareness so you can get to where you were always going to get anyway. So in other words, like, Psychedelic medicines accelerate the path of awakening. They can accelerate the path of awareness. They can certainly accelerate the path of development. But what I'm learning more and more, especially now that I've been doing these substances for over 10 years, is that as I get older, the less and less that I do them, or I'm sorry, not the less and less that I do As I get older, I have an interest in doing them less and less. Mm. So in other words, once you've learned some of these lessons, once you've had some of these insights, then it's much more about the practices of meditation and breath work and um, spending time in nature and you know taking weeks off. It's about coming back to that stillness and quiet and knowing that if you need to, you can go back into the substances and they can open that up. But once you've open that up once you have that awareness that a lot of the sort of work is to just consistently come back to that place without psychedelics necessarily. And I think that has been like, I would say a much more recent revelation, like within the COVID era over the past six or seven months, that's been a big revelation. And it's largely been a result of working with a specific coach and just seeing that a lot of the shifts and changes in my own sense of being that I had attributed to psychedelic medicine, which was profoundly helpful for a lot of things, um, I'm now seeing even greater shifts without any psychedelic medicine whatsoever. And so I think that's also really important to emphasize that psychedelics are fantastic catalysts. They they can open up an awareness that is, you know... Um, it's just incredible, you know, like, like the, the analogy is, is you're climbing up the mountaintop and, um, psychedelics will just take you on a helicopter right to the mountaintop and you go, Oh shit, there's the top. Awesome. <laughs> but then you have to come back climbing. 
right? So psychedelics are great because they clear those clouds. You can see the top. You can see the vision. You can see who you're becoming. You can see that path of self-actualization. But the fact is you still have to every day show up and do it and do it and do it and do it. And I think one of the dark sides of psychedelics, and I wouldn't say this is a risk so much, although it could, I suppose, be categorized as a risk, is those who continue to do psychedelics again and again and again, there's a tendency to disassociate from reality. There's a tendency to disassociate and say, oh, like ayahuasca showed me this or mushrooms showed me this or whatever showed me this. Um, and people will often use that as an excuse to, to, to still be essentially shitheads in their everyday life and not actually like do the tough shit of, of healing the shadow or clearing the anger or, you know, whatever else it might be. So I think that's a really important element is psychedelics can be used to disassociate. They can be used to distract. They can be used to t take you out of reality. But when they're used with intention, when they're used with purpose, when they're, when they're used with reference, and when they're used in combination with a meditative practice and breath work and these other things, as sort of a every now and then, but certainly not all the time, um, they can be incredibly uh, powerful and, and impactful in healing. So they're they're complicated. And again, this goes back to what even you read in the uh, the bio of mine, which is it's really about the skill then of psychedelics, right? How you mm -hmm. cultivate that skill, how how often you decide to use it. You know, I'm still comfortable microdosing, like I'm microdosing right now three times a week, psilocybin mushrooms, and I like that. It's it's a nice little bump, but it's been seven or eight months since I've done a high dose of a psychedelic. And I probably won't do a high dose of a psychedelic for a while uh, because things feel good and I feel centered and I feel balanced <laughs> and microdosing is, is good enough as it is right now. Mm, yeah. Yeah. It's powerful. I think that feels um, in alignment with the what, stories that I've heard from a lot of people that have used psychedelics. Like if they're using it to, you know, catalyze uh, something or if they're stuck and they need to get out of this, this stuckness, um, it's a really powerful tool. But I think integration and also the daily, daily living and, and again, doing a meditation practice and breath work, I think those things are really important because um, I think we don't want people to rely on them. We want it to be used as a tool. Um, or at least that's been my perspective on, on what I've seen other people go through. Um, but I love that. So, so once you, you reach a steady state, um, it becomes, uh, you, you're in a place of, I guess, and I wouldn't say, I would say like enlightenment or you're feeling that you're, everything's good. Um, so it just, I, I, I caution people to, uh, continually rely on, psychedelics, especially without the integration, because for some people it could take three months and for other people it could take years, right. Or decades. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I think at least that's what I've seen, you know, in my community is that there's become a little bit of an over-reliance on them, um, rather than using it as a tool. And so I love that you said that it's really inspiring. And that's, that's also common with like those who are new to these, right? Because like when I first started doing LSD when I was 19, it was like, holy shit, this is <laughs> awesome. You know, like, so I did, I probably did LSD like 15 times the first year that I had access to it. So I think it also just comes with experience that like after you go through it a while, you're like, oh, wow, it really makes this process easier. And then once you're 10 years in, you're like, eh, there's shortcuts, but there's really no shortcuts. Mm. You know, I think that's, that's sort of the, the takeaway. Yeah. One thing I've also heard, and I'm not sure if you've heard this, but in the spiritual circles, I've heard that if, when you do psychedelics, um, your chakras open, your auric field kind of opens, um, which is how you can access this interconnectedness. And so, you know, holding that intention in space is really important because you're so open, right. And, um, just making sure that there's maybe other energies or other people around that might not be, um, in alignment or in high integrity could also affect your, your set and setting. So just something I've heard, I'm not sure if you've heard anything like that, but, uh, something that's come up. <laughs> yeah. I mean, sense of greater sensitivity, greater openness, I, I think totally. And, and like we talked about earlier, set and setting and, and making sure you're mindful of that also includes the people that you're doing these substances with. So, so always, always be mindful of, of who you're letting in. It's the same thing with like who you date or who you go into business with, or who you, you know, whatever. Um, you want to like, you want to be mindful of that for sure. Paul, what are some books, resources uh, that have inspired you on this path? What are some books that you might want to recommend to people who are maybe just starting out or who have experimented with psychedelics but want more information? 
The first two that come to mind are Michael Pollan's How to Change Your Mind. That's a, that's sort of the, the, a really great one, a New York Times bestseller. And then the second one would be James Fadiman's The Psychedelic Explorer's Guide. Um, Michael Pollan's is much more of a journalistic perspective. James Fadiman's, I would say, is, is a little more practical and, and useful. Um, so those are those are the, I would say, two books. And then, you know, in terms of companies, I think MAPS has been doing the, the, the most work with this, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. They've been around since the 80s and have really sort of pioneered this um, psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy element. And um, I mean, Tim Ferriss has a lot of great podcasts. He's interviewed a ton of great people in the psychedelic space, including Stan Groff and Jim Fadiman and... Um, Many, many others. So that would also be a good resource. I could keep going on. I'm just like, what, what, what's the sort of great versus good versus not so great? And then, of course, we have our own, you know, the, the, our website, The Third Wave, uh, which is just a great educational platform um, with guides and a podcast and and other things like that. Uh, and that's a good starting point for those who are, you know, a little more novice in this in this area. So I would say those are so those are some good starting points to to check out. Okay, great. And we'll uh, also add those to the show notes. And Paul, what do you want to tell our listeners about their health and wellness? What's your main takeaway? I always come back to personal responsibility <laughs> when it comes to health and wellness. You know, I always come back to, um, you know, we all come from varying circumstances. We all have different stories of things that we've gone through, and yet we're all here now. And the the path of where we're going is is determined, you know, by... It's determined by us. It's determined by how we want that path to go. And and I think that that has been always one of my core takeaways from, from psychedelic experiences is that I can manifest and create the vision that it is that I want to step into. And in particular, when that comes to health and wellness, uh, the, the, the deeper takeaway was let go of all the conditioning of a modern era and get back into the, the roots of your humanity, of who you are as a, a homo sapien. So I got into paleo and I got into functional movement and I got into wearing barefoot shoes and I got into, you know, doing a lot more things outside and standing desks <laughs> and just like getting into my body much more and listening to it and developing an intuitive sense. Because I think at the end of the day, that that's the key to any health and wellness path is to develop such a close intuitive relationship with your sense of self that the decisions that you make just you can feel into them and you can feel what's right for you and it takes a lot of work to get there um you know you got to peel off a lot of bullshit and work through a lot of bullshit but ultimately i think for every health and wellness path it's cultivating that intuition of what our body needs and it's taking responsibility for for everything that happens to us from a, from a health and wellness perspective Great. And Paul, how have things changed in the psychedelic space with COVID and quarantine this year? Are people doing it less? Are they doing it I more? I mean, it's been, it's been, <laughs> just, it's, been yeah. it's been interesting. Yeah. It's, well, there's just so much happening now with all these companies that are going. So there's a ton of companies mm -hmm. going public. There's a ton of investment coming in. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, you know, COVID has only amplified the current mental health crisis and people now are looking for solutions even more than they were before. Um, I think there are some really interesting business and innovative business models that have popped up like telemedicine ketamine therapy where you can, you can get ketamine sent to your home. A company called Mindbloom does this, get, get ketamine sent to your home and uh, then go through a therapeutic experience with it. And so I think since COVID, there's been a huge uptick and increase in psychedelic companies and interest in psychedelic substances because of, of all of these things. Now, the downside is we can't do conferences, we can't do events, we can't actually get together with a lot of people in the psychedelic space or people in general because of what's going on. Um, so that's unfortunate, but you know, that's just how it is at, at this point in time. And I think, you know, we're just going to see that, that accelerated pace of innovation and development over the next, I mean, I, over, over the next 10 years or 20 years or 30 years, but certainly over the next six to nine months as COVID continues is like people need solutions fast. Mm -hmm. And I think psychedelics are going to be that key for, for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The mental health crisis is just continuing to grow. I mean, it's really, really uh, just super sad. Um, and Paul, 
Can you share resources where people can learn more about you? And I also wanted to just um, highlight where we can support legislation that can maybe open up the space for psychedelics in the United States and in the West. What can we do to, to help you or to help this mission? I think education and learning more about these substances and learning about the, the pros and the cons and how to just speak about them on a, at a basic level, which is what our website is so great for is, is really being plugged into that, to that education. And, uh, I think owning our experiences and, and living through our experiences and, and not necessarily evangelizing from them, but just owning all parts of ourselves. And, and like when we have these experiences that people ask, Hey, how did you shift? How did you change? What happened? Like just being upfront and honest about what it was that, that helped you. Uh, I think that authenticity goes a long way in terms of um, uh, destigmatizing these important medicines. And then when it comes to more information, you know, about about our work, I mentioned the third wave, which is the thethirdwave.co. And then I'm on social media at Paul Austin three W, and third wave is on social media at third wave is here. So those are probably the best places to start to to find out more. Amazing. And you also have a YouTube channel, correct? We also have a YouTube channel where we post the podcast and we'll be posting more and more um, videos as well as, as they come out. Amazing. Paul, thank you so much for your time. I feel like I know so much about psychedelics, but I actually learned so much more in this conversation. And so I imagine that everyone who's new to this space is probably taking a ton of notes. And so really, really just so grateful for your time and your knowledge. You're obviously so well-versed in this space. So um, really grateful for the work that you're doing and how much you're helping people. And thank you, Yasmin, for, for hosting and, and making this happen and for the, the audience that you're helping and that you're serving. It was you know, a really a pleasure and an honor to, to be on the show today. Oh, thank you so much, Paul. And for our audience, thanks for joining and for listening. In this episode, we learned about how to microdose with psychedelics for spiritual growth, creativity, and business. And you can tune in to Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one -on -one conversations with leading experts in wellness and spirituality. Thanks again.